welcome to Vox Popcast, pseudo-academic roundtable podcast with drinking and swearing. I'm your host, not Christopher Maverick, but Katia Gorecki. Mav has abandoned us uh, to join, I don't know, some kind of post-apocalyptic warfare and or is looking doorknobs. That's, I don't know. Uh, but I am joined today by Hannah. Hannah, what is up? Wait, so is this like your like revenge on Mav for all the times you were missing where he was like wondering if you were the victim of a murder? Sure. I mean, I just assume he keeps assuming that I lick doorknobs now because COVID is over. So I assume that he's out looking mm-hmm. doorknobs. I'm Definitely not, really not sure. over. Definitely I, should wear your mask. Definitely yeah. should be vaccinated. I mean, you also just shouldn't lick doorknobs. Um, I don't really understand why that is a thing that Mav thinks that normal people do. But, um, you know, it's a choice that he's made with his life. Russian roulette? I don't know. It, I, I, I don't. don't. I don't. Um, yeah, I, I wonder if uh, anyone's turned this off already. Um, so we're not talking about licking doorknobs today. Thank God, no, we're not talking about licking doorknobs. Uh, no, this week, for those of you who follow along with our blog at voxpopcast.com, highly recommend. You will see all of our posts about upcoming episodes. Uh, but we are talking about a very niche nerd fight within game studies. The infamous kind of battle between ludology and narratology, which is basically two different perspectives in game studies about how we should study and talk about games, or at least how we can study and talk about games. So we'll get into a, like a, the deep, the weeds with our guests about what this actually means and why we should or shouldn't care about it. Um, but just to set some terms, at its most reductive level, the debate is basically on the side of ludology. The premise is basically that games are unique form media forms uh, that are shaped by mechanics and formal systems, and that that makes them distinct from other narrative or representational forms like film or television or novels. And then in the other corner, we have narratology, which as you can guess by the narrative part in the name, um, argues that games are actually just sort of like the next stage of the evolution of media and how we tell stories. And yes, there are novel components of interactivity and how we tell those stories, but they're still fundamentally a form of narrative and therefore continuous with the long history of media studies. And I think what's really interesting about this conversation is both kind of like how it helps us talk about how we talk about games on a meta level, but I think it's also a really interesting case study for how the internal and external pressures of a field in the academy can shape how research is done um, in a way that isn't always obvious when you're just looking at a peer-reviewed research article or like following a scholar on Twitter. I would love to introduce our esteemed and delightful and generous guests. Um, I'll have them introduce themselves. And uh, let's start with David. How's it going, David? Hey, everyone. Thank you for having me. Yes, this is David. Um, I'm glad to be back. And um, yeah, I'm, I, I've, I got into game studies, actually, when I first started grad school. I took a, a course that um, was pretty much an intro to game studies. And sure enough, it relied on the ludology versus narratology uh, debate, non-debate. Um, we'll talk about that, I, I'm sure. Um, and that, that's kind of how I cut my teeth on it. Um, although I do uh, have an article out um, on a kind of formalist reading of blood and gore in video games, which came out in Discourse at the beginning of the year. So, um, yeah, yeah, I should yeah. mention, uh, David has previously joined us, if you listen to our uh, D&D episode, uh, talking about race characteristics and things like that. Um, that was David. So he is back again and hopefully will join us again in the future. 
Uh, and then next up, I'd like to introduce uh, Stephanie Kinzinger. Hello. I'm very new to game studies. Um, I've been playing since I've been trying to wrest the controller from my older brother um, as a kid. Um, but I'm excited to be here and talk about games. I don't have much formal uh, education on Lidology versus narratology, but um, I do study a lot of narratives um, as I'm in a PhD program for English myself. So excited to be here. Yeah. Well, uh, welcome. We're glad to have you. And then lastly, but not leastly, uh, Michael Hancock. Uh, yeah. Hi, everyone. My involvement with games goes back to my, or game studies goes back to my dissertation, which was on uh, games and their textual representations, including instruction manuals and the way that games appear or books appear inside games. And these days I've been researching on uh, game books and ergotics. So I'm, I'm staying on topic. So as a starting point for most most listeners and most people who have been involved in cultural studies, like the idea of narratology, as we call it in game studies, is probably pretty intuitive, right? It's like thinking about games as a storytelling medium in the way that we would think we would look at other, you know, common media forms. Ludology can be a little bit more opaque to somebody who's not already in game studies or media studies. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit more about what that actually means. So historically, the term ludology comes from the term ludic, which basically just refers to playfulness and play. It was originally developed by psychologists in the mid 20th century, basically to describe how children play in order to tease out kind of the behavioral characteristics on childhood development. And it was adopted in game studies to refer specifically to the playing of games and the study of playing within games rather than that kind of more unstructured childhood playfulness that was the term originally referenced. And I think one of the things that I think is important to understand about ludology that helps distinguish it from narratology is the emphasis is on games as rule-bound systems, which I think is especially true of computer games or video games because they're also constrained by the code and the hardware that they're dealing with, right? The premise behind ludology is that interacting with these the systems is fundamentally different than, than interacting with other media forms. Um, but yeah, I think like ludology to me is like focusing more on the aspect of, of game mechanics and systems and downplaying or sometimes excluding entirely, depending on the scholar and depending on the project, like the narrative aspects or the representational elements of a game. So what do other people like when you're thinking about ludology, like what are the other aspects of this definition that or what, what the field means to you? Uh, that you think it's really helpful for listeners to understand. I think um, maybe the like most extreme hard-lined approach, one which we see, for instance, in um, Gonzalo Frasca's like classic sort of blog post, uh, narratology meets ludology, uh, is the emphasis on not only rules but also like a win state. Um, the game has to have a win or lose. I, I think something that a lot of early uh, ludologists uh, adopted, um, ergotics. Which is which I think overlaps with that concept um, that ergotic is, I think, uh, Espen Arthseth uh, defined it as essentially any text that requires non-trivial effort to pursue through. And that can mean a lot of things, but... Uh, Vel Madi Karhulati frames it in particularly in terms of work that requires some performance that would be difficult or work that has some sort of best outcome, worst outcome, the win-fail condition. That, that's really helpful. I, I've seen it actually updated a little bit. Um, well, maybe more repeated by um, 
There's a uh, philosopher, Dominic Lopez, who has a small book called The Philosophy of Computer Art. And, you know, he includes video games or computer games as computer art. And um, he he similarly relies on a concept of ergotics, although he doesn't, uh, I don't recall him naming Arseth. But he discusses it in terms of how the artwork's display, which he uses in a very broad sense, um, requires the audience to be a participant, to create it. Um, and I bring this up in addition because I think it helps to clarify like what specifically is at stake with the notion of interactivity. Um, and Katja, you, of course, like uh, pointed out how absurd it is to say that games for the first time ever are interactive artwork. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, what, what Dominic Lopez points out is that um, if you were to watch a game be played, you would be also watching the person playing it. By contrast, if I go to a movie theater, uh, I'm not going to be watching other people's viewing experience to see how it's impacting the presentation of the film, right? I may well be aware that other people are laughing at the same jokes or different jokes for me and, uh, and so on and so forth. But um, I think it's a nice sort of uh, spectrum upon which to place the interactivity, um, uh, which is really just thinking seriously about ergonics. Helpful point, because I think I think a lot of this and this is kind of like, you know, I mentioned in the blog post, I'm kind of like a both and kind of person of like, it's not so much that I, mean, I think so often this split insofar as it is a split in the game community in the game studies community is presented as like a binary. Whereas I think in practice, especially I think as the, as the field has evolved, people understand like, no, this is a continuum, right? Like Tetris to me. And I mean, Tetris is one that comes up often because Tetris doesn't have a lot of strong and obvious narrative components, right? It's like stacking, stacking blocks in order to achieve a win state, right? When most people play that game, it presents as maybe not pure mechanics, but very close to it, right? And so if you're going to do an analysis of Tetris, you're probably not that concerned with narrative or representational elements because it's not a huge part of the gameplay. On the other hand, studying something like Horizon Zero Dawn or Bioshock and saying that we're not going to talk about representation, we're not going to talk about narrative, strikes me as kind of silly on its surface because like, I think one of the ways that the game games as a whole have evolved since, you know, the days of Atari is narrative and representational evolution. But I'm kind of curious about what people's experiences are of the specific fact that this is presented so often as like an either or or as a fight. Like there's a really famous poster of like an actual like wrestling match poster between a ludologist and a narratologist. Like this is presented within the field as some kind of battle. It's it's like not exactly, uh, which I, I think I'll just make declarative statements throughout this entire podcast and say, but also no. Some of the early writings that I've read do present it as very like fighty, very declarative in part uh, to just, you know, back up what you've been saying is like they, they, they feel a need to justify like why the field of games is a thing and why study this medium and also like particularly studying computer games. I sometimes feel like when I'm reading certain things, um, they forget that other games exist and have existed for a much longer time. And I can see why someone would read, um, for instance, the computer game studies year run um, 
uh, year one um, editorial by Espen Ariseth, which I'll link in the show notes and think, oh, like this is a huge fight. It's like a manifesto almost, I think. Yeah, this um, that's really helpful, Hannah, because it, it reminds me of the way I, I chose to make sense of the way that these two sides were presented. And that is as kind of like uh, akin to the caricature of Descartes and Cartesian dualism that like people just kind of assumed that Descartes was this like madman who thought that we were all like split between thinking things and extended bodies when he's like, I mean, the whole point of the pineal gland like um, is to, is because he was aware that this was a problem that, you know, at the end of the Cartesian meditations, he's talking about how the body is this more intimate extended thing within the world that we're acquainted with. And, you know, he, he was aware that this was a problem and that this like substance dualism wasn't a very, you know, it wasn't cut and dry, that it had some issues that needed to be resolved. Um, but nonetheless, like it, it can be helpful to kind of accentuate these two sides. But of course, the fact that there's a debate at all suggests that they're also at the same time isn't one because they're both right. You know, both sides are correct in a way. It's very um, Deridian in the sense of like, it's this origin for game studies that we simultaneously like, no, this never, this isn't really a thing. This never really happened. And at the same time, we can't look away from it. We keep drawing it back in and processing it. Well, I think in some ways, like, we keep going back to it because it's useful or I think like there, it, it has, it has some kind of use value. Like that's my only explanation because, and I kind of talked about this in my blog, my, the blog post, I haven't looked deeply into like the exact cultural forces that produce this debate and kind of it's, it's recession within the field. But I feel like my take on it is it's like, what I talked about is like when you're establishing a new field, which game studies is a relatively new field in the, you know, continuum of academia where, Things are charted in decades, if not centuries. You have to, like the first stage of establishing a new field, which a lot of that has to do with economic resources and time. And like, there's a certain amount of, it's not just whether or not your ideas are right. There's a certain amount of like, practical, economic, and, and other constraints, like you have to establish that study, the study of games is valuable in a way that is distinct from media studies, English departments, literature departments, like other spaces in which these texts might be, might be studied. And so it makes sense from that perspective why ludology presents as this kind of like embattled, somewhat confrontational perspective. Like I think the the editorial that Hannah mentioned for listeners, I really encourage you to go look at it because I think this illustrates a lot of what at least I see in the field is it's like it comes across as kind of intense, kind of like even if it's not actually like slagging on other fields, kind of suggesting that like if you are if you are a person who focuses on narrative or if you are a person who's approaching this from a media history standpoint, you're not actually doing quote unquote real game studies, right? That unless you are a ludologist, you are not really doing that. Can I, can I share a quote and just like sit there? <laughs> <laughs> Please do. You know exactly what I'm going to share. Okay. Of course, games should also be studied within existing fields and departments, such as media studies, sociology, and English, to name a few. But games are too important to be left to these fields. And they did have 30 years in which they did nothing, exclamation point. That's a big deal in academic writing to have an exclamation point. Like architecture, <laughs> which contains but cannot be reduced to art history, game studies should contain media studies, aesthetics, sociology, etc. 
but it should exist as an independent academic structure because it cannot be reduced to any of the above. These are interesting times, which, you know, as, as someone who comes at this from English, well. Also, to be fair, he's definitely in, in this editorial, he's talking about computer games. So seems to forget that there's a not really. I, I, I know he's aware. There's a whole history of other games. I'm just saying there were a lot of board games in the 19th century. They had narratives. They had they were drawing on like very important economic and political and social like issues. It's interesting. Framing this as a narrative of um, of field formation, just I've been reading a lot of um, literary formalist criticism. Um, so I went through the Russian formalists who rule, by the way. It's so good. Um, and, and then uh, I just read a bunch of new criticism uh, or returned to it. Um, and it's like like what you just read, Hannah, it could be taken as a paraphrase for what some of these scholars were writing, especially the new critics who are like taking to task that literary history is a form of criticism. And they say, yeah, you need to know what the words mean, but you're not reading the work as a work. You're not, you're not reading the poem as a poem, as Clint Brooks would say. So there is like a, a scholarly need might be too strong, but let's go with it. Need to be polemic. And just to like, to carve out a new perspective. Um, and I think you're right to debate how new it really is. Um, just begins by coming off as defensive. Well, um, a colleague of mine, uh, Emma Vossen, has been, uh, you mentioned earlier uh, the kind of cultural background that they were coming from. Uh, she is looking directly into that, and she's been sharing some of the quotes, even Spicer quotes on Twitter. And it is some impressively vicious attacks in some cases. I think a part of it is just like, I, I don't know exactly what scholarship uh, online looked like in 2000 because I had just started my undergraduate. But I think the fact that a lot of this discussion happened on a blog, it changed the way that people talk to each other about it. And it, it's accessible to us publicly in a way that a lot of academic debates aren't. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about like, I mean, at least in like my scope of what I look at, it is one of the newer fields. Like we don't have a lot of examples of fields that have emerged during like the internet age. And it's especially interesting because as much as that, you know, the, the editorial that Hannah mentioned is kind of inflammatory. We'll go with that. Um, it does mention specifically like the relationship between game studies with the internet, because the internet is also a form of hypertext, a form of this ergodic liter like literature where it involves the reader, the user having to put in non-trivial effort to navigate, right? So in some ways, like, it is a field about the internet age, in some respects, emerging during the internet age. And that, yeah, that's an interesting question of, like, how that then shapes the culture of the field, right? It's super interesting to hear the background that you're all bringing in. Um, I haven't had much of this information before, but as you're all talking about it, I am thinking we are mostly narrative-based people here, but there is something to be said for why I think game studies, you know, at least in these blogs in the beginning and maybe now as well are pushing so hard to have kind of a separate voice from something like narratology because there are at least one or two distinct differences right between just narratology and what I'm hearing to be lidology is I'd be interested to hear 
I have maybe one idea of it, uh, what you all think about the actual kind of differences, um, because there are so many overlaps. Um, I think we all agree on the overlaps, especially something like having a set system, like within a novel, if we're just talking about a novel, you have a system in place, you have rules, you have characters written. Uh, but the thing I keep going back to, which I can't quite fit into what I study within novels themselves, is kind of having that individual's choice um, or having a modicum of control um, that's obvious to someone reading or playing a text or, you know, rather playing a text rather than just reading. Um, Because you do have that interactivity. You are a part of the story that has been written with something like a narrative. But when you're playing the game, I'd I'd love to talk about, because I'm curious myself, um, how that actually differs from just reading a text, which again, I've kind of reduced (laughs) to just reading because I do understand and um, see that reading has interactivity in it. But if you're actually sitting down and playing the text, um, I think it's important to kind of talk about the differences. I was quiet in the beginning because I didn't want to derail this conversation with my whatabouts. But you, same, you bring, up, like, bring up the, the whatabouts. You know, I, I'm thinking about choose your own adventure stories. We oh, did yeah. that episode on Bandersnatch and like, is this a game? Is this a TV show? I was actually thinking about Bandersnatch <laughs> when we were talking earlier. Yeah, like I... I really remember reading The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins, which is a mystery novel, so it's a little less um, obviously interactive than something like a choose-your-own-adventure story. But I remember reading reviews of it um, because they're, the clues are there and you can solve it if you like pay attention and have a bit of imagination. And one of the reviews compared it to a Victorian parlor game. Ooh. I, I'm also like now just in my like asking questions, uh, angering the ghost of this editorial because there's another spicy quote that says games are not a kind of cinema or literature but colonizing attempts from both these fields have already happened and no doubt will happen again which I take issue with the word colonizing um no sir no does Janet Murray in her keynote address like four years later specifically referencing this blog post we did a whole episode that actually weirdly Katya was not on about ergodic literature talking about some of the more interactive books and Texts. Um, we eventually got around to games, though uh, perhaps not as much as we should have. Then there are games that kind of do like an opposite thing, like things like that are based off narratives, like marrying Mr. Darcy. It only took us 20 minutes for me to mention it. <laughs> the reason I think I find the binary or like the spectrum of ludology versus narratology like a useful thing and why I think we keep going back to it is because I think most games and most people's experience of games is somewhere on a continuum between the two, right? Like I was saying about like the Tetris versus say like Bioshock. One is much more heavily, much more involved on narrative than the other. And I think part of it, especially to the, the question of agency though, is it a difference of degree or is it a difference in kind? Because when I'm reading a novel, I'm not not participating. Or when I'm reading, like watching a film or watching television, I'm still participating in an act of media consumption. It's true I don't have control over the way the story plays out, but I'm also like, we don't, I'm, you're not completely passive in that act. I mean, if you watch reality TV, you can vote to decide what couple stays and what couple goes home or whatever, you know? Actually, a fact Fascinating point. I mean, many game scholars have talked about games, but video games in particular is the quintessential medium of the 21st century because, like, as anyone who's involved in media production, I think of almost any kind at this point, is aware, gamification and using game ish tendencies 
in many different media forms and many different product types like is a growing trend like we seem to be interested in making other things more and more game like and I think this is part of the reason why I'm interested in this whole like desire to make ludology specifically about games and actually specifically about computer and video games because it's like there is many things you can take from ludology and from the focus on mechanics and formalist analysis of video games to other kinds of media that I think is really valuable and I feel like in some ways by like overly fetishizing the uniqueness of video games it's kind of limiting the impact of the field in the long run in terms of more a more expansive view of games I think one of the positive effects of ludology on the field is that maybe I'm misattributing here that uh, like some of the early texts that have been kind of reclaimed as game studies texts, uh, things like uh, Roger Calwa's um, aspects of play and Pazinga's definition of games like these are texts from the 50s the 60s that have been I mean certainly not written about video games but like pulled into the conversation in a way that maybe the narratology approach wouldn't have done yeah no totally I think especially like the I think it's Pazinga's concept yeah he's the one that coins like well maybe not coins but like popularizes the idea of the magic circle for uh, listeners the magic circle is basically the idea that part of what distinguishes a game from a more informal instance of play is that there are rules or systems in place to basically distinguish the experience of the game from everyday activities. So like the idea is when you're playing a hopscotch, the rules of a hopscotch produce meaning to like the particular sequence of jumping that outside of the rules of hopscotch, that sequence of jumping doesn't really, it's just jumping around and being goofy, right? And I think to your point, part of what that does is that the emphasis on the way that games rely on those kinds of structures, I think is really valuable because it's, it's pivoting the emphasis on what makes the process of storytelling in games specifically a unique experience. Because I think that part, talk about games, you have to talk about the systems that allow the story to be told in order to look at the story. Because like the story of Bioshock, you went to Bioshock, but like you could tell the story of Bioshock in any other medium, but it would be a fundamentally different experience than the kind Kind of experience the game produces. I think this is also part of why TV shows and films based on video games, generally speaking, are not super successful, although there are examples of ones that are done well, because what makes the original story so compelling in part is the high degree of participation. And it's really difficult to reproduce that experience in a medium where, yes, as I mentioned, there's interaction, but it is a very, it's much lower degree and a very different kind of interaction. I don't really have a a beautiful segue here for what you're saying, Katya, but um, I'm thinking of games like Overwatch or maybe even League of Legends where you have the gameplay itself and then you have narratives being formed about those players or sorry, those um, characters outside of the game. So they have stories, backgrounds, um, how they interact, and then you just go and play the actual game yourself. So I'm not quite sure how that fits. Um, but I can see that as almost cutting the ludology and narratology for the player, you know, having the narrative on the side and then having the gameplay on the side as well. There's a, let's see, so some listeners might have shot glasses ready. I'm going to say the word ludonarrative dissonance. <laughs> Um, yeah, Stephanie, uh, this is great. I, I was thinking while everyone was talking, I was thinking about the way you 
phrase your question, which was like, what is the issue of choice? Like what choices are being made? And um, of course, uh, choose your own adventure books or, um, you know, Bandersnatch or like, um, of course, adaptations into computer games from choose your own adventure games. Or I'm thinking of like um, King of Dragon Pass is like this, where the choices are directly related to the narrative. Whereas other games like Bioshock, which is fairly on rails, I've seen it at conferences touted as like this masterpiece of ethics where like it doesn't matter what you choose, whether you're going to harvest the little sisters. Um, and indeed, if you choose the right option, um, you get rewarded in the end even more. So, <laughs> uh, but maybe one way to think about this is there's a distinction made by like Boris Tomaszewski and I think Victor Shlosky as well. These are Russian formalists in the early 20th century who distinguish between narrative and plot. And it's a little confusing, so bear with me, because I think we would invert the terms today, or at least I would, but like narrative is taken by them to be the, the sequence of events kind of as like a timeline, sort of as it happens. And plot is the way in which that narrative is presented to the reader. Um, and so it's the way Tomaszewski talks about it is that it is, um, it's the presentation of the narrative as a sequence of motifs. Right? So it's like a system. And, and of course, like I'm sure we've all come across characterizations of literature or film or any other dramatic work of art in which it's kind of treated as this holistic system in its own, right? That it sets up its own criteria for evaluation. And I'm like heavily invoking your criticism here now since I've been reading that, which to me sounds very similar to this ludological perspective or orientation, which would want to begin with thinking about the systemic elements of the game. So uh, to just just to get back to little narrative dissonance, the idea here is that the choices you have for the game about whether you're able to succeed, perhaps we could say whether you're able to successfully write the story you're meant to be reading that the game developers have prepared for you, the dissonance comes in when it just doesn't suit the story, you know, where it's like, as you say about um, Overwatch, it's, it's to the side, although that's kind of a, an interesting example since it's like a, a, a multimedia cosmos, if you will. Just understand. So the the dissonance you're talking about is it's is it the dissonance between like what the agency that the player expects to have on the narrative, or is it like a dissonance within the text itself? Gosh, I'm I'm completely blanking on examples. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> no worries. I think one of the first contexts I've seen it in, uh, definitely the Bioshock example, but also um, this also shows, I think, when this concept came into kind of parlance that I see Uncharted, especially the first one cited, that you play this happy-go-lucky archaeologist, Indiana Jones type, who is also like just racking up a body count of hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> The dissonance between what the game is asking you to do and what the story it's trying to tell you is. I'm also wondering if maybe something like more on a logistical position is something like Horizon Zero Dawn. When you have these moments of choice that don't really affect the outcome of the story, unlike something like maybe Bastion, for example, Supergiant game. I'm on a Supergiant kick. Um, I'm loving all of them so much. Um, Transistor, Bastion, and Hades. And I think they all kind of play with the idea of choice and narrative, which I might get back to in a minute. 
Um, but I was thinking about Horizon Zero Dawn and how you have these moments of interactivity that don't really affect the outcome. And then you have these greater moments of kind of cinematic experiences when you have the cutscenes. Is that another way that we can kind of describe the dissonance that can happen where you're there for play, but then you have, I guess, a terrible combining of words there, but you have moments of cinematic experience. Is that a way that dissonance can be projected as well within a game where you're kind of detached? from being interactive. And I think that's definitely something like lots of discussion in literature about, you know, the idea of like immersion or flow, which we've moved away from immersion kind of like as a dominant term and more towards flow, but basically the idea of like, I mean, if you're a gamer, you know this, like you're in the game, feel like, to say immersed again, even though I just said that that's not the term we use, but like, you know what I mean? The idea is like, I feel like flow is always one of those things, you know it when you feel it. Um, but the idea of feeling like you're, you're somehow like you're deep, you're basically deep engagement with a game and like being pulled out of the game through a cutscene or through something where you no longer have control of your character kind of reminds you like, oh, I am not my avatar. It can disrupt that flow state. So I think that might be an example of a different kind of dissonance than I think the, the, the earlier example of like the dissonance within the, the fact that for basically mass murderers is maybe not in alignment with the character, right? The subject of Horizon Zero Dawn, and I think like this question of dissonance is like one of the things that I'm thinking about during this conversation is depending on what your emphasis are when you're looking at a game, I think also shapes with what does and doesn't look like a good game to you. So I see a lot of people having this interesting conversation about Skyrim, but basically one of Skyrim's failings is the fact that there are major choices in the game that have no impact on the in-game world. And I'm like, okay, on the one hand, that's true. Player agency doesn't have an impact on the game world. That is a shortcoming of the game. I wouldn't argue with that. On the other hand, this is a wildly popular video game. I could say similar things of Horizon Zero Dawn, like quite popular game. You don't have a lot of control over the narrative. And so I wonder sometimes if heavily emphasizing ludology misses part of why people play games. Because I mean, the success of those games, even though they have mechanical shortcomings, suggests to me that that's only like a part of why people play video games. So while I was uh, kind of getting together my notes for this, I noticed a thread of from people like, as we've mentioned before, uh, Bogost and Kevin Moberly, that they argued that the problem with the ludology narratology debate is that it kind of wipes the playing field of any other kinds of debates that the, both of them, according to them, are different examples of formalism, uh, bringing that back to the conversation. Uh, and because if you focus on those, you're not talking about things like player experience. That, that's good because it, I think it points out fallacy going on in this uh, anonymous comment that Katya brought up about uh, Elder Scrolls, about Skyrim. And that is to say that character choices don't impact the game world relies on what I would say is a false dichotomy between the character and the game world. Like, doesn't the character exist in the game world? And if they choose to develop certain skills over others, that's a change in the game world. I think quite similarly, like if we take Horizon Zero Dawn, and I'm gonna I might be forcing a kind of analogy with other media, but if my Aloy is uh, or my rendition of her uh, is more of a stealth-oriented uh like bow user, and say Stephanie's Aloy is like all about gadgets and doesn't really care about stalking. Run into rooms and yes, yeah. Actually, yeah, you actually got me. <laughs> I got you. Okay. I don't stealth. I just run in and shoot. <laughs> I'm the same way. Yeah, run and gun yeah. at all times. <laughs> 
good, good. Um, and and like like that's different, you know. Like it may not change the result of encountering the big baddie and the cutscenes, which have been pre-written. But it's a different. It is a different narrative. And, and you know, Gonzalo Frasca talks about how. I mean, he says some things which today I think are just they're so outrageous that he must mean something completely different. Or he says that like adventure games can't have narratives like there's the narrative that results from playing them you know like there's a narrative of me playing tetris but tetris itself doesn't have a pre-written narrative you know today like adventure games are like uncharted uh tomb raider god of war whatever which are basically cinematic experiences that you just kind of like have to keep pressing the play button on the remote to to get through and so like the choices may not affect the quote-unquote outcome but we don't play games for the outcome always i don't um, and we don't watch a movie for the outcome so much as for the, you know, the whole experience. And I'm probably speaking way too broadly for people. Like, I certainly want to know what happens at the end of a TV show. But I think it's like the end state or like you were talking earlier about like win states being important. Winning the game is one value of experiencing the game. Also, like not all games have traditional win states or win states at all. Like, I guess Animal Crossing, you win by like getting KK to play a concert because the credits roll but also like no my island's not done Hannah I think Animal Crossing is a really interesting example because like to me that my response to Skyrim is it's like and, and the critique I'm, I'm, I've seen is basically like people talking about like you can complete the main storyline you can complete the Civil War quest line and there's no discernible difference in the world around you. And like, I, I would agree, like it would be super great if you can pick a side in the Civil War quest line and the world changes when you've like defeated the quote unquote other side. I think that would create a bunch of mechanical problems with every quest and side quest. So I think from a practical level, that's asking a lot. But the other aspect of that is it's to me, part of the appeal to David's point of playing these games, particularly open world games, where you get to create your own character and then you also get to determine how you move through the world, like in terms of your class, quests you do, how you complete those quests, et cetera, et cetera. Part of that experience is like, at least for me, and maybe I'm a giant weirdo, I'm open to that possibility. <laughs> Part of it is that like, I have a story I am telling to myself and the game is a tool for me to tell a story. I have my stealthy rogue doing stealthy rogue things. And that character in my mind has a background, has a set of values and ethics that are different from my own, all that kind of stuff. But it's like, is that like, is that sort of like collaborative storytelling using the game? But like, to me, that's very much part of the participatory action of playing games. Celia Pierce, one of the early on the narratologist sides, argued that the thing you have to do in the context of games is readapt narrative. And she distinguishes particularly between formative and experiential narrative versus meta story. So the, the story the game is supposedly telling you is the meta story, but the story you're telling yourself as you play it is more the experiential. Yeah, this, um, I wonder, have any of you watched any, or read for that matter, any of Tim Rogers's video game reviews, game criticism? He, he worked at Kotaku for a year, but he he did like a six-hour video review of this 1994 Japanese dating sim called Tokimeki Memorial uh, Forever With You. And he's played this game like 20 times. This is really interesting because there's something there about how like part of the holistic approach for me, at least of looking at games, is one which is like maybe fundamentally incomplete. I really agree with you, Katya, that the game is a system for producing narratives and that 
you know, again, like what Dominic Lopez, how he puts it, that the the user, the audience is integral to producing the computer works display. Mike, what you were saying about Pierce, that there is this meta story and the experiential side of the story in that I bring up Tim Rogers because like you have to experience the experiential story multiple times in order to arrive at a kind of meta level appreciation for the systemic kind of undergirding structure that enables the production of those stories. And this is getting, you know, increasingly more sophisticated because like if we compare Skyrim, which as you say, just like tremendous practical problems for having any level of like systemic narrative. I mean, because that game is so much going on and, and like they're notoriously buggy, perhaps notoriously isn't the right word, famously buggy, right? It's sort of a, a feature, not a bug. But then I, I've spent a lot of time playing Cave Cud, which is a roguelike, has a lot of procedural narrative aspects, really lo-fi graphics, turn-based, sort of in the classical rogue style. And the developers refer to it as an idea simulator. It's just kind of wacky and buck wild how much experimentation goes on with just different ideas. And so I don't know, like, is that one way of kind of merging the narrative and the logical side? Like it's um it's a way of accounting for the kind of open-endedness of the ways in which events can happen, experiences can be produced. Um, but it doesn't go so far as to say that like, oh, what we really want is just real life in the video game that's so responsive that you can do anything whatsoever, which I think like is no longer a work of art anymore. It's like maybe even beyond like a kind of sandbox experience. So to get at that, I kind of want to loop back around. I think something you said earlier, the thing that gets lost here in this sort of battle between two different versions of formalism is player experience and what it is like to actually play a game and what we actually get out of playing games. I mean, for me, like methodologically, one of the things when I study games, I'm most interested in looking at is going on YouTube and watching people's playthrough videos, right? Because one of the things that, to the strength of ludology, actually, one of the things that I think that emphasizes is the fact that what you're talking about is we are participants in the creation of the story. We are essentially completing the text like the video game is not done until it's played and that requires me to like push buttons and do what i do and because of that no instance of playing the game is ever going to be the same to the point about play styles and like my aloy is not the same as your aloy is not the same as stephanie's aloy as much as i think like ludology and narratology like both have their strengths and weaknesses and like are useful tools to think with more than like camps that i think we should ascribe to i do think it's really difficult to study video games without looking at how people play them and how people use them. I mean, even just looking at, to go pick on the article that Hannah referenced, there's a line in there about video games have this interactive component and the social component. It's a true like media community that's built in as if other forms of media do not have communities around them, right? I uh, see Lost. Right. Lost is my go-to, like, early 2000s, like, here's an online community of people obsessed with the media. Anyway. Right, but actually, it's a great example because part of it is because Lost doesn't have the communal aspect built into the TV show, which, I, like, is a valuable observation. There is a point to be made of, like, yes, video games have a built-in sociality, some of them, in a way that TV doesn't. But it's like, in order to make that argument in a compelling way, you basically have to ignore the ways that humans beings use media 
and the way that human beings experience media. While I find these this conversation like between these two like these two different positions to be a useful tool, it's like it's not representative of how we actually experience this stuff. Because if I'm playing a video game, particularly if I'm not approaching it as a scholar who's like already looking for these things, I'm just playing it to play it. I experience the mechanics and the story and the representation and the art and everything as a whole. So in some ways, like picking out these formalist aspects from whatever standpoint you're doing it is always going to miss like the bigger picture. And there's reasons that drilling down at that level is valuable. I mean, something that's related to audience thinking about something that's interesting about narrative to me is like how it produces feelings or does not. I'm I'm wondering if I'm not sensing actually like maybe a significant difference in the way uh, Koch and Hannah, you just articulated this like responsiveness to the game because ideally a formalist approach, as I understand it, would try to appreciate how the work of art how it like is able to control that response from the the reader, player, viewer, whatever. And so, you know, one of those ways of framing it, your example, Hannah, is like, in what ways do the mechanics or the like setup of the the narrative, let's say, I mean, or even we could take into account like the box art, the the marketing campaign um, of a game, like how does that impact the player's consideration of colonialism. I'm trying to phrase this as like a question. Like, do you think, is the game just at the mercy of what the player brings to the table, so to speak? Or with the way in which a broader culture frames gaming in the first place? Um, and in this, I'm, my like tacit reference and now explicit references to the book Metagaming by um, Stephanie Bullock and Patrick Lemieux, who argue that a metagame is like the medium in which games can be played in the first place. That, that the very idea of a win state is something we bring to games in the first place. And I think we see this is something that Jesper Yule actually does with Art of Failure book. Um, and, you know, it's from what you were saying, Katja, it makes sense that you would gravitate toward this book, which I agree is, is really great. But his, his approach to me always struck me as kind of like psychological in the sense of his topic is what he calls the paradox of failure and that people tend to avoid failure. And yet we seek out games, which not only involve failing, but like that's the point often. Like they make us fail and they like they set up, as he puts it, like an they invent an inadequacy for us to overcome. But, you know, there's another way to look at it, which is that you actually don't fail in games. You can't because what we call like a fail state is actually just the next screen. And from software's games, like, you know, Dark Souls, Soulsborne games, Sekiro, I think play with this expectation a bit or this kind of presumably like formal requirement that games ought to have a fail state. And that is, it just says you died. Like, it's not game over. It just says death. And you just go back and things reset. And like, what I, what I like about these games is that they integrate that repetition, this like recursivity of the play experience into the game world itself, which is quite nice. Just to add to what you're saying about Dark Souls, um, that's one of the reasons I love Hades. <laughs> Yeah. Um, or something like Dead Cells or Celeste, those more recent games, um, using the death mechanic in order for you to progress and in order for the story to progress, which I just, I love Hades so much. <laughs> I played so much of it, but it's so interesting to be rewarded for dying, but also to have that um, concurrent frustration with having died again. Well, that's another thing. Thing that makes games kind of a distinct medium because like I mean I think about this as somebody who takes a lot of my 
knowledge about game studies and interactivity to designing, you know, products and software and things like that. Now, there are very few contexts in media or like software development where challenge is a good thing. You're normally trying to minimize challenge. Like we like we, we don't we don't read a novel and like say like, oh, that was a challenging read as a good thing, typically. Um, I mean, if we want to be pretentious, maybe we do. But like in general, that's not, that's not, you're not trying to like make life difficult for your reader unless you have very specific intention. Whereas like a major thing about designing analog games, video games, tabletop games is balance and the balance of that challenge and making sure it's challenging enough so that the player's skills are being tested while at the same time not basically like frustrating them so much that they throw the controller against the wall. (laughs) The fascinating thing about that is I don't think that there's another medium that as a whole uses challenge or frustration as one of its inherent and essential elements. Like sure, like Antonin Artaud's plays attempt intentionally to make fundamentally kind of unpleasant experiences for the audience but theater as a whole does not or you have something like richardson clarissa where you are just frustrated by the letters being passed back and forth and you're screaming at the characters and there's also a wonderful history of fan fiction with that novel as well just thinking about that element of frustration that i'm not sure i don't know if it was intended or not okay this is maybe a tenuous one but maybe you could make the argument that media that emphasize seriality push in that direction and, and games are heavily serialized in that way you play loops of games like in the sense that it needs to give you just enough lack of closure that you tune in next week this is really great because we could we could like really expand what counts as the serial or maybe this is a bit more on the side of recursivity but like is not the repetition of just the sentence structure a form of serialization uh, what i'm getting at here is i'm, I'm going to kind of like really push the bounds of what katcha was setting up which i mean i generally agree with but perhaps this is a useful useful framing um and that is to say that actually i was thinking like okay are there counterexamples? are there games which eschew any kind of challenge or difficulty but no i'm going to say that actually these various forms of media all involve some kind of challenge so let's see if i can i can make this case and if it's hopefully it's helpful um the fact that a story let's say a prose story keeps going is because it like obstructs the conclusion it extends it it puts something up in the way granted this is a really broad sense of challenge but i i do think that like requiring the reader to keep reading more sentences is akin to requiring them to like press forward on the directional pad to keep moving or like to press the quick time action event at more or less the, the opportune moment in order to progress the, the narrative or just to change the display, if you will, in a generally desired way. I'm trying to put it extremely generally so we can avoid like presuppositions about whether there's actually a story being told. And like there's not a poem like I think it's it needs to challenge the reader, but maybe it would make more sense if instead of saying challenge, we said like it sets up certain tensions or contradictions or paradoxes, you know, ironies, um, witticisms, illusions, so on and so forth. As you were talking, I was thinking about uh, David O'Reilly's, I don't even know if it's really a game. I think he calls it a nature simulation, but mountain. So mountain is basically like you have a floating mountain. 
stuff is going on on it. There's seasons, objects pop up and disappear. And you're basically supposed to click randomly to make things happen, essentially. Whether or not your clicks have anything to do with what actually happens isn't really clear. And that's kind of the point. Like part of the simulation is basically that like your agency, if it exists, is limited at best. And just like mountain's going to do what the mountain's going to do what mountain's going to do to a greater or lesser extent. And I wonder if like there's a way that like when we're talking about poetry as a form of challenge or tension or something like that is similar to Mountain because Mountain doesn't have a win. Like Mountain is, if it is a game, it is a very atypical one because it doesn't have a win state. It has a kind of implied narrative, I would say, but it doesn't have like, I mean, David O'Reilly's games in general, like break many rules of what is conventionally considered to be good game design, specifically because the concept of agency within gaming is challenged a lot. I'll, I'll leave it at that. But I wonder if like there's, there's I guess I'm trying to think through whether there's like some kind of connection between a game like that, where the challenge I feel like is a very meta challenge of, of the player working through whether or not they have control over the game and if they do or don't, how that impacts their experience with the kind of interpretive challenge that you're talking about with, with poetry, because the challenge is produced by the reading of the poetry and then going through whatever process you're going to do to understand it and relate to it in the same way that mountain is basically because it is kind of ineffable and weird is asking you to think about why on earth you're playing this thing for whatever reason that might be what that then means to you if that makes sense absolutely yeah that's a that's a phenomenal example i, I haven't played mountain but i have played every <gasps> Um, it's so good. Yeah, which is I think it was kind of the breakout hit for for O'Reilly. I think a lot of your descriptions apply to this. So for people who aren't familiar, you move around various entities in a three dimensional world that scales up and down, like down to the level of like quarks or whatever, and up to the level of like star systems. Um, and periodically, you hear kind of mystical philosopher giving lectures in, in like the 60s at Berkeley, um, you know, who says things like, uh, I am the Big Bang because I'm made out of stardust and everything began with the Big Bang or kind of like, like the Big Bang is still going on and I am it and we are all it, that kind of thing. In everything, um, as you say with Mountain, you have to just sort of interact with it to discover and perhaps even set for yourself goals, goal states, you know, as opposed to like bringing your own expectations for what you want to do. But it's there is still a challenge there. Like if I'm a dust moat and I want to become a tree, I have to like scale up the scales <laughs> in order to make trees perceptible in the game engine. And and I think like this is a nice example of how the game itself presents the criteria for kind of overcoming different tensions or maybe resolving like scalar differences, whatever themes you're thinking about or experiencing as you play the game. But it also situates these goals and these criteria for judging or evaluating the experience. And I don't mean that in like a normative sense, is it good or bad, but rather like just understanding what it is you're experiencing. Um, but it also situates it in the broader context of the short history of video games, much in the way that like a poem will both set out its own like criteria of different themes and motifs that are going to be related to each other and arrive at perhaps a kind of synthesis or, you know, whatever. Um, but of course, it's also always experienced with an 
backdrop of other poetic material. The interesting thing about everything is like there is challenge, but you can also completely sidestep it. Like you can allow the game to autoplay. It will play itself. Oh, cool. Yes. So this is, that's such a great representation of how like, I think the mistake of expecting this kind of, I think it's over now, but there was this kind of dream that I would associate with like older narratological that video games would be so, have such free will, right? Such freedom of choice that you do anything and arrive at any kind of narrative, you know, which aligns with this kind of like Cartesian caricature being like the homunculus who whatever they want because they're like a substance of pure thought. Um, and by contrast, if you took kind of, if you synthesize those two and thought of it in terms of Spinoza, then like the game is this entirely deterministic medium, right? It, it's software. Um, and if there's a glitch, it's probably just doing what it was programmed to do. The, the question of agency is, I think it's nice how O'Reilly's games can throw this into question, but really what it does is it reveals what's been the case all along. And that is that the agency is entirely being provided by the game. That's interesting because I feel like the direct opposite of that is there are games that like function on you building your own narrative, uh, like the new board game Oath, where you set up a game and play through a sequence and then like the next sequence you play is is determined by what happened in the previous and it's about building a history of a nation or, or role playing. But I guess that's probably another episode. So I, so I guess we've resolved absolutely nothing except... Actually, David wraps up on a really good point because I think part of what David O'Reilly's work, but I think also just like these kinds of very fringe case games show is like part of it is I think the the debate we've been talking about between ludology and narratology, like part of it is also like very grounded in its time. Like ludology is something that was developed in like the 40s and 50s and then brought into video games to the studies later and things like that is that games themselves have changed. And so like now that we have these more bizarre fringe cases that especially as they like, you know, as the games like everything, which by the way, I highly recommend. It is one of the few games that I force other people to play so I can watch them because everyone's responses to this game are widely variable and it is fascinating. Just go play it. And you also get to be a bear that rolls around. It's wonderful. Yes. Um, <laughs> and then, I mean, I, yeah. But anyway, video games have become much more complex. And I think one of the things that like talking about throughout is like when whatever, like one way or another, like this debate if people really want to adhere to it, it misses a lot of how the medium has evolved because it's much more wild and weird than it was, say, like 20 years ago when this debate was much more prominent. So thank you all for coming and sharing all of your uh, insights on this today. It's been a really fascinating conversation. Do you all have anything to plug? David, any exciting projects, articles, wonderful things that people can uh, find you for? Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, you can check out my website, davidrambo.org. I occasionally blog stuff, but it's been a while. Um, I just had an article come out in the latest issue of Computational Culture. Go to their website, computationalculture.net. And I have an article about um, building programming um, and relearning to type on custom mechanical keyboards, including uh, non-standard layouts, Colmac, Dvorak. So I'm sure there's at least one like awesome geek listening to this who's like, yes, I'm there for that. Um, and then also some uh, French process philosopher, Gilbert Simondon. Um, and thank you for having me. Qualify is awesome, but I now I've started making my own keyboards recently and I now want to read that. Oh, good. Yes, this is for you, Kasia. And Michael. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Person of Con. Uh, you can 
listen to me talk more on my comics podcast that I host with two very talented comic scholars, Three Panel Contrast. In particular, uh, in relation to this, we have an episode on comic game books, which is a lot of fun. Uh, if you want to hear about You Are Deadpool, that's the place to go. I will also plug something I have nothing to do with, the narrative game Elsinore, in which you play Ophelia stuck in a time loop trying to prevent her own death. It's amazing. Awesome. And Stephanie. Thanks for having me. I have nothing tangible to plug, just projects in motion. But thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> and Hannah, where can the internet find you? You know, the internet can only find me at voxpopcast.com, where we post our new blogs, including one on the new Netflix series, The Chair, which I'm sure will be an episode where I'm endlessly annoying. I mean, that's the other subtext of our show is posts that are endlessly annoying. It's what we do. It's what it's our professional qualifications and things. Uh, you can find me um, uh, technically on the social medias at just that nerd kid on both Instagram and Twitter uh, when I decide to participate in the internet again. As Hannah mentioned, you can follow the show's blog at foxpop.pop. Good lord. Bob Law's law firm. <laughs> <laughs> As Hannah mentioned, you can follow the show's blog at voxpopcast.com where we share posts on upcoming episodes for you to join in the conversation. And you'll also find our show notes. Follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, always at Vox Popcast. We're also on the YouTubes. We really would appreciate your follows so that, you know, we can pretend to be cool uh, and groovy, which, you know, is great. And you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. While you're there, if you could leave us a review, it really helps us bring new folks to the show, and Mav will be happy. Thank you again to our panel for coming to chat, and thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank Maximilian at thought for music for our theme music, which is building ever so epically as we close out the show. Bye!